Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. This can be found on page 1675 in your pew Bibles. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If this were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come back, and I will take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for all this time? If you have seen me, If anyone knows me, they know the Father as well. I'm sorry, I lost the line. <laughs> don't you believe that I... Oh, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? How can you say, show us the Father? The words that I say to you, I do not say them on my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe the evidence of the miracles themselves. Of a truth I say to you, anyone who has faith in me will do the things I have been doing. And greater things than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. And if you will ask anything in my name, I will do it. That the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask anything in my name, and I will do it. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to be to God. Thank you, Steve and Barb, for uh, bringing God's word to us this morning. Will you just say a, a prayer with me now? Lord God, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. And now, as we proclaim, um, proclaim that message, we pray that the words of my lips may be your words and the meditations of our hearts may be pleasing to you. This is our prayer in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Most Christians know those words, and we know them fairly well. <clears throat> and if we don't, we are probably in the minority. The minority not just among other Christians, but really the minority among most folks who live in the West. You see, these words speak to the exclusivity of the Christian faith, and that tends to perk up people's ears. 
As John Richards uh, points out, in a pluralistic society like ours, these words are not very palatable. In fact, they are met with the resistance of a tired toddler pushing a plate of broccoli away. And if uh, you've been around any tired toddlers lately, you know that that's not a good scene. No! Religious pluralism. What that is, is it's basically the idea or the teaching that no one single religion has a monopoly on the truth. There are many paths up the same mountain, and all religions meet at the top. All religions lead basically to the same God. And so you can understand why why pluralists really come off looking so good today. I mean, you don't have to say no to anyone. You don't have to say you're wrong. You just get to smile and make everyone happy. Meanwhile, Christians, or really any exclusivists, look like bigots. Now, that's a a rather superficial view of of religion as well. You see, to keep up with this analogy, um, while most of us are struggling up our different paths up the mountainside and we can't see anyone else, we can't see any other paths but our own, while most of us are in that position, it turns out the pluralists actually have a view of the whole mountain. And they can see all of us struggling. They can see the destination that really all of us are heading to the exact same place. And so in the end, they're basically saying that they alone have the big truth. They alone have the real truth. And they alone know that the rest of us are lost. And there's really no arguing the point. And so in the end, what happens is even these pluralists become just as intolerant and exclusive as the people that they despise. They are the only ones who see the truth. The rest of us have been misled. The point is, friends, that all of us are exclusivists in one way or another. And Jesus most certainly was an exclusivist. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty exclusive. But I wonder if sometimes those of us who are in the church fail to represent Jesus' exclusivism accurately. Let me ask, quick question for you. Before Steve and Barb read our text for this morning, how many of you knew that those words came from John 14? You don't have to raise your hands. And how many of you knew the context of John 14, the context of those words? Did you know that this is part of Jesus gathering with his disciples in the upper room? This is part of his last supper? See, what I'm trying to get at, friends, is what we do with these words, I am the way the truth, and the life. We sort of rip them out of their context, right? In our own post-mortem, we rip them out of the body that they're in. They take these precious organs, we lay them out on the table, and we try to study them in their own right. And we make them strictly tools for apologetics, tools for defending our faith. And I wonder how much 
you know, ripping those words away from their context actually distorts them in the end. Not their exclusivity, let me be clear on that, not their exclusivity, but the nature, the character of that exclusivity. For example, I think what many people hear when we hear these words is something like this, Jesus saying, I have come to show you the way to the Father. I have come to show you the way to the Father. And then, what does He say? Well, He says, so follow my teaching, right? You need to be kind. You need to be honest. You need to be generous. You need to quit stealing. You need to quit doing drugs. You need to quit fooling around. And if you do these things, you can get to the Father. You can find the Father. Now, friends, there is a premise there that I think leads us in that direction, leads us to hearing those words in that way. And the premise is this, that God is above us somewhere, that God is apart from us, that God stands in all of His godliness, in all of His holiness. He stands above the din and above the sin. And we need then someone to show us the way to God and that's Jesus. And so those of us who, who know Jesus, those of us who know Jesus' rules, those of us who know His commands and obey them, we are the ones who then get to be with God. And, and if you're a pluralist here this morning, you're about to jump out of your seat right now at this point because, because what you're hearing is that it's good people. It's the followers of Jesus' rules. It's, it's Jesus' rule followers who get to be with God. And you would argue with us that, look, there are good people in every religion, that really that's what every religion is about. We say that God is distant from us and there's some teacher who tells us that this is the way to get to God. And pluralists would say to us, they would look us in the face and they would say to us, I know people of different religions who are even better than you. Right? They're more generous. They're better neighbors. They're nicer people than the Christians that I know. And yet, you want to exclude them from knowing God. How can you say that? And if that's the way it is, we don't like Christianity. And friends, they have a point. They have a point. If that's what the Christian faith actually states, then they do have a point. But I would argue that really that's not what the Christian faith says at all. I would argue that we have already distorted this text. Because Jesus does not come to show us the way to God. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. Jesus did not come to tell us how we can prepare ourselves to enter into God's presence. Or how we must prepare ourselves to enter into God's presence. What does the text say? It says, I will prepare a place for you. Jesus is the one who does the preparing. 
But for some reason, we seem to have a hard time hearing this message. We have a hard time hearing Jesus say, I am the way. It's not that I have a plan, I'm a person, and I am the way. Why do we have such a hard time hearing that, do you think? Let's take a look at our our text a little more closely this morning, and I just want to ask you, where does this text actually begin? Where does it begin? It begins with trouble. Let not your hearts be troubled says Jesus. There is trouble in this text. Here, there, everywhere, there is trouble in this text. As I said, chapter 14 is part of a scene of the Lord's Supper, and chapter 13 is where it begins. Chapter 13 is is full of trouble. It's here that Jesus fingers Judas as the one who will betray him. One of the twelve, one of his friends, one of his brothers will betray him. It's also in that chapter where Jesus says, I'm going away where I'm going. You cannot come. You cannot follow. And then he tells Peter right in front of all the others, and Peter, you are going to deny me three times. Friends, there is trouble. This is a dark night at the table. But it's not just trouble around Jesus, right? There's also a different kind of trouble. If you go all the way back to chapter 11, there you find the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has died and Jesus' good friends, Mary and Martha, are there with the villagers and they're weeping over this death of Lazarus. And Jesus, we read, is greatly troubled. You could interpret that as he shudders and he weeps. And then in chapter 12, that's where where Jesus says that his hour has come. And again, we read that his soul is troubled. You see, there's not just trouble around Jesus. There's actually trouble inside of Jesus. Scott Jose notices that, that in our chapter, maybe you notice this too, it's, it's Thomas and Philip who are the ones who are asking the questions. He says, isn't that a little unusual? I mean, usually it's, it's the big three, right? It's, it's Peter, it's James, it's John. They're at the center of everything. And here, they're nowhere to be seen, and we're left with Thomas and Philip peppering Jesus with questions. And you can just see the whole group is in chaos. The situation is topsy-turvy. Everything's been flipped upside down. Nobody knows what's what. Peter has just heard that he's going to deny his Lord, and what we have left are... Thomas and Philip asking their questions of Jesus. Friends, there is trouble in this text. You see it everywhere. And what we hear Jesus saying in the midst of all this trouble, what I think we hear him saying is something like this. Trust in me and I'll get you out of the trouble. What do you think? Is that fair? Is that what you hear? Trust in me and I will get you out of the trouble. My father has a house somewhere, somewhere in a good, trouble-free neighborhood. And if you trust in me, I'll get you out of this troubled place 
and I'll take you to be where the Father is. Is that what you hear? Let me take you out of the trouble to a better place. And here's that premise again, right? That God lives where? He lives somewhere above the trouble. He lives apart from the trouble. He lives distinct from the trouble. In fact, God and trouble are mutually exclusive. They're like oil and water. You can't put the two things together. They're mutually exclusive, which, friends, leaves us as believers in a quandary, doesn't it? It leaves us in a quandary. Because when trouble enters our lives, and friends, it always does, there is not one of us in this room who lives a trouble-free life. But when trouble does enter our lives, when it begins to sweep over us and sweep us away, we immediately assume what? Well, we must have done something wrong. We must have done something wrong. I must not be following all the rules that Jesus told me to follow. Why? Because if I was following the rules, I would be where the Father is, and where the Father is, there is no trouble, but I've got trouble, so something is wrong, and it must be with me. There must be something wrong with me, and so I've got to do a better job of following the rules. But friends, that is not the story of John 14. In John 14, God is actually where the trouble is. In John 14, the disciples are troubled. In John 14, Jesus is troubled. God is where the trouble is. See, here's the rest of the story, okay? In John 14, Jesus declares himself to be the Father's house. That's what he's saying here. I am the Father's house. Okay? When you and I think of the Father's house, we automatically think of a place that's far off in heaven somewhere, right? It's far removed, distant from us, maybe in the clouds somewhere. But the Father's house in Scripture is literally the place where the Father dwells. It's the dwelling place of the Father. And throughout the Old Testament, the place where the Father dwells, the place where He lives, is in the temple. It's in the tabernacle. That's His earthly dwelling place. If you want to meet with God, you go to the temple. You go to the tabernacle. In John chapter 1, all right, Jesus says himself, or we read about Jesus, excuse me, that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And the Greek word there for dwelling is tabernacled. The Word became flesh, and He tabernacled among us. He templed among us. What we are being told is that the Father's house in this world is Jesus. If you want to live in the Father's house, if you want to dwell with the Father, you go to Jesus. And if Jesus is the Father's house, friends, then the Father's house is not a million miles away, off in space somewhere. Rather, the Father's house is right here, wherever Jesus is. 
That's where the Father lives. And friends, in John 14, Jesus is right in the middle of all the trouble. Jesus is right in the thick of it. And what that means is that God is not actually above and beyond the trouble, but that God, too, is smack dab in the middle of it. So friends, if you have trouble in your life, and all of us do, there's no reason to hide it. There's no reason to cover it up. There's no reason to to feel ashamed or like we're different than everybody else, that we're excluded somehow from the community of Christ. If you have trouble in your life, it does not mean that God the Father has left you, that He has left you to fend for yourself. God and trouble are not mutually exclusive. God has no aversion to stepping right into the thick of our trouble. Whether that trouble is self-made whether it's been imposed by others, God has no trouble whatsoever coming into our trouble and preparing us to dwell with Him. He has no trouble coming to us. The Father's house is in Christ. But I want to go back and... and revisit with you for a moment this idea that Jesus came to take us to a better, more trouble-free place. Okay? Because I think that's where so many of us live. That's where so many of us want to be. We want to be in this trouble-free place and we think that Jesus came to do that for us. I found myself daydreaming the other day, and I I do this quite often, and I just catch myself. But I was daydreaming about um, having actually a car in the driveway that didn't need repairs. And I was thinking, someday that's going to happen. Talk about deluded, right? What day is that actually going to happen? I mean, as long as you're in this world... It's not going to happen, Pete. That's what this world is like. It's filled with repair shops, isn't it? Have you noticed that? Auto repair shops, clock repair shops, furnace and air conditioning repair shops. We even have departments for returns if you can't repair something, right? It's a given. Everything needs to be fixed sooner or later. We have people repair shops, right? For body, soul, mind, spirit. And all of those shops are really, really busy. You know why that is? It's because we're really, really troubled people. We're broken people. That's just the way it is. That's a part of this world. It's a part of this life. Friends, did Jesus really say, you know, what I've come for is I've come to help you skip through all of those days or skip over all of those days with the repair shops in your life and take you to a place where you won't need repair shops anymore. Is that what Jesus came to say? Listen again. 
Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Not I'll show you the way to life. I am the life. Let me ask you it this way. Try and get at it this way. Is there a better place that you can think of, a better destination to get to than Jesus? Is there a better destination to get to than Jesus? Well, you might say, well, yeah, heaven, right? Because in heaven we won't need repair shops anymore. Everything is just going to be good. Okay, what's heaven without Jesus? It's utopia. It's built by man. And it's that place that we think we're all struggling to get to. It's that place I think is out in my driveway when that car doesn't need to be fixed. That's utopia. In heaven, Jesus is present. Is there any better destination than Jesus? Do we have to wait till you get to heaven? Is there a better place than the Father's house? If there is, you name it. Name it for me. Before you do that, let me tell you a story or remind you of a story from John chapter 4. You got to love the Gospel of John. It just sort of builds on itself, doesn't it? In John chapter 4, there's this wonderful scene of a woman who comes to the well, right? You've heard it. She comes looking for water. She's got her big water jar on her shoulders, and she comes to the well, and there's Jesus, right, of all people. And Jesus engages her in conversation. And he looks at her and says, you know, boy, you look thirsty. I've got water here that if you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. And she's intrigued. Wow. Yeah, he says, it'll, it'll well up within you. The kind of water that gives you life. You'll never have to be thirsty ever again. And then as he engages her further in conversation, we realize that, that Jesus isn't just talking about physical water, is he? He's, he's using a metaphor here. And as we find out a little bit more about this woman's life, you find out she doesn't just have a physical thirst. She doesn't have just an empty jar of water. She has an empty soul. We don't know what trauma she went through, perhaps, in her life, but it seems like her life has just been, been one stretch of bouncing from one man to another, trying to find someone to satisfy an empty place in her soul. Jesus says, where's your husband? Well, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, you've been married five times, and, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. There is something going on in this woman's soul that she can't seem to satisfy. And Jesus says, you know what, I can, I can slake your thirst. I can actually satisfy you in a way that nobody else can. And, and just in meeting Jesus and in talking with Jesus, she seems to find something because she grows so excited that she runs back to town and she's got to tell the rest of the village, her family and her friends. And then John gives us this little throwaway line in the text. And John is so good at this. But it's just this little throwaway line and it says, and she left her water jug behind. Isn't that incredible? Her thirst <clears throat> had been satisfied in Jesus. She wasn't thirsty anymore. 
Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can satisfy you so that you're not thirsty anymore. Let me ask again, is there any better place, any better destination than Jesus himself? Jesus is the way. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the destination. When you dwell in Jesus, you leave the water jug behind because you've found something that satisfies your soul in the deepest place. It doesn't matter if you don't have a man. It doesn't matter if your car needs fixing. It doesn't matter if the hospital can't fix you because I've got something better. I've got Jesus. I'm trusting in God and I'm trusting in Jesus and that's enough. That satisfies every longing in my soul, no matter what I go through. And friends, that's the exclusivity of this text. Do you trust in Jesus? Not to whisk you away somewhere, to pull you out of this world, to bring you to a better place. Do you trust in Jesus today? Have you found that your soul is satisfied right now? That's the exclusivity of this text. It's only those who really trust in Jesus who find the satisfying life of communion with the Father. And that, in the words of Tim Keller, is, is the most inclusive exclusivity there can be. It's inclusive exclusivity because everyone is included who freely admits that they're in trouble. It's not just the good people without the bad. It's not just the healthy people without the sick. It's not just the wise people without the foolish. It's not just the smart people without the ignorant. The only ones who are fit are the ones who confess that they are unfit. That they cannot get to God, but they need a God to get to them. They need a God who does not avoid trouble. A God who loves his people so, so much that he will enter into the thick of their trouble in the person of Jesus and bring them home. Just to conclude here, Jesus uh, says to Thomas in verse 7, he says, Thomas, from now on, you do know the Father. From now on. 
Think about those words. Where is Jesus when he says that? From now on, Thomas, as you see me betrayed by my friends, as you'll see me weeping in a garden and wrestling with God, having all sorts of doubts, as you see me arrested and beaten, as you see my flesh torn from my body, as you see me judged guilty in a court, as you see me hung up on a cross, when you see all of that, you'll know the Father. Now you know the Father. A God who doesn't stand up in heaven somewhere and say, come on, work your way up to me. He's a God that says, I'm coming to you, no matter what it takes. From now on, this is the story we tell this morning. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, as we come as guests invited to your table, would you tell us the story once again that we may know the Father in you. That we may hear the story once again of how you were not averse to our trouble, but instead it was that trouble that brought you to us. We praise you for this message. We praise you for this meal. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.